We recited a few verses from Psalm 125, and we sang, just sang, a slight modification of this psalm, and I invite you now to follow along as I read it for us publicly. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the sixth Psalm of Ascent. Uh, Psalm 120 is the first. Psalm 134 is the 15th. And this collection of 15 Psalms, which make up the Psalms of Ascent, they are from beginning to end experiential. By that I mean each of these psalms flows from a specific experience in the writer's life. And so in Psalm 120, the psalmist is experiencing hostility. He writes from that experience. In 121, he is experiencing danger. In 122, he is experiencing joy. In 123, he is experiencing contempt. And in 124, he is experiencing deliverance. And so the Psalms are experiential, extremely significant for us because as we read these Psalms, as we hear them, as we study them, we can immediately relate to them. We find our experiences in those of the psalmist. And we use these psalms to better understand our experiences. And by better understanding our experiences through these psalms, they shape our thoughts, they regulate our feelings, and they change our perspectives. And it is precisely the same thing in Psalm 125. Again, the author is writing out of an experience. What is this experience? What is it he's passing through that causes him to pen these words? Let me put it another way. What is it that grips his heart? What has hold on his emotions? What fills his thoughts? What grips him, causing him to express what he articulates in this psalm? The answer is subtle, but it is there. It is found in the third verse. Let me read it again for us and pay close attention to what he says here. For, that means because, so he's giving a cause, a reason. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. There's the experience from which he is writing. It's encapsulated in that phrase right at the start of verse 3, the scepter of Wickedness. A scepter points to what? Military power. Political power. And so evidently, the psalmist is writing 
during an era, during a period of time in which there is a wicked king ruling over Israel, perhaps even a foreign king. And because of the scepter of wickedness, wickedness is spreading over society. It is infiltrating society. And what is his fear? He expresses it in the second part of verse 3. His fear is that this spread of wickedness will be so pervasive that it will have a corrupting influence even upon the people of God. That they might actually stretch out. Look at the language he uses at the end of verse 3. They, the righteous, might actually stretch out their hands to do wrong. These are the days in which he lives. These days can be described as disturbing, disconcerting, disheartening. And this is what has hold on his soul. And this is the experience then from which his pen flows. And the ink flows from his pen as he pours out his heart before God. Now we can empathize with that. Let me give you a couple of scenarios. Actually, before I do that, let me remind you of what Randy prayed for a few moments ago. He mentioned in his prayer the country of Syria, and he said something to this effect where the government is killing its own citizens. Lest we pass judgment, he then went where? Back home, the United States of America, where the government is killing the unborn. There are two scenarios, two living examples of the scepter of wickedness. Wickedness. How does a believer... How does a Christian see his way forward living in Syria? How does a Christian see his way forward living here in the United States of America where a president still dares to speak in terms of moral right and wrong and absolutes whereby for all intents and purposes he has rejected God? He has dispelled all notion of absolute truth whereby all we are left with in this country is arbitrary law. Arbitrary. Whatever society thinks is best. How does a Christian see his way forward in this environment? Let me give you a couple of additional scenarios. Let's imagine I live in the country of Malaysia. I mention it now because I mentioned it earlier in our missions morning. And in Malaysia, 85% of the population, they are Malay, ethnically speaking. I am Malay. 10% Chinese, 5% Indian. Because I am Malay, I am Muslim. I have no choice in the matter. To be Malay is to be Muslim. I was Muslim the moment I was born because I am Malay. And it is against the law for me to convert to another religion. For me to reject Islam and adopt another religion, that is equivalent to committing a crime. And the penalty for committing that crime is imprisonment. But as I've already mentioned, 10% of the population, they're Chinese. And among the Chinese and even some of the Indians, there is an unbelievable number of Christians. And spread throughout my country of Malaysia, there are literally thousands of evangelical churches. But the people are all Chinese. There's no Malay in these churches. But I I work at a business with a couple of Chinese ethnically people. I mean, they're, they're part of Malaysia. They're Malaysian. That's their citizenship. But they're Chinese ethnically speaking. And they're believers. So I'm exposed to Christians. Down the street from where I live, there is an evangelical church. And I know they gather there on Sunday morning faithfully. And I know they read a book called the Bible. And I can buy the Bible. I can purchase it in a store. And so one day I decide to buy it. 
And I begin reading the Bible, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God convicts me for my sin. The Spirit of God convinces me that I need a Savior, and the wind blows where it wishes, and I'm born again. I repent, and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, I have just committed a crime. I have just broken the law, a law punishable by imprisonment. I have a wife and children. I have a huge extended family. I have, a, I have a, a flourishing business. What is this going to mean for me? What is this going to do to me? You know, I can't even worship at that evangelical church down the street where all those Chinese Christians are because if I were to show up there, the police would shut that place down and throw all of them in prison and accuse them of having proselytized me. And then I'd be thrown in prison for having broken the law by converting from Islam to Christianity. There's a scenario, brothers and sisters, of life under the scepter of wickedness. How does that man see his way forward? Second scenario is this, completely hypothetical. I live in a country called the United States of America, state of Texas. And, you know, my, my forefathers, they came here five, six generations ago, back in the 1800s. And by God's good grace, every generation have been Bible-believing, God-fearing, gospel-preaching Christians. And, you know, they've enjoyed, they've enjoyed living in a country, in a land that isn't Christian per se, but is certainly built and constructed upon biblical presuppositions built upon a certain framework in which there are certain givens and a certain worldview built into the political system, built into the economic system, and built into society. But you know, in the past decade, me, boy, I've seen some changes. Changes that my forefathers would never have seen coming. I've seen some changes of of such magnitude. And looking ahead, I'm wondering what changes lie down the road for this country. Uh, very different as the presuppositions upon which this country was built as they are rejected and left in the wake as the country moves forward. What is this going to mean? Carl Truman, very insightfully, he has argued that in our day what we have seen is the merger, the coming together of two systems of thought, two powerful systems of thought have emerged, have merged together fused together in our day here in the United States of America. The first is this, what Carl Truman calls a moral myopia. Myopia. If some of you were to remove your glasses or contacts right now, I would all of a sudden be what? Blurry. You would still know it was me. All I would have to say is out and about, and you would know that Stephen up there, no doubt about it. But I am, I would be blurry to you. Why? Because you are short-sighted. Moral myopia, moral short-sightedness, that as this country has systematically and intentionally relegated God to the periphery, whatever our dollar bill might say, as he has been relegated to the periphery, absolute law has gone with him. And all we are left with is civil law. Well, civil law, which is not built upon absolute law, which is God's law, civil law simply becomes arbitrary. And we're seeing that now in the realm of morality. Where morality now, basically what? Anything goes because there are no absolutes. Moral short-sightedness, moral myopia. We live in a society which is unable and unwilling to see 
the soon coming ramifications of the decisions it is making today concerning morality. Moral myopia. The second force which has merged with the first is this, what Carl Truman describes as an aggressive agenda of absolute conformity. A little wordy, let me repeat it. An aggressive agenda of absolute conformity. In other words, you must conform to today's moral standard. That is what is being proclaimed. That is the prevailing thought. That is what we are being bombarded with, and it is aggressive. This aggressive agenda, it is intentional, of absolute conformity to this moral myopia. And the two have fused. The two have merged. And here's what I'm hearing today living in the United States of America, even in the state of Texas. Here's what I'm hearing. I must embrace. I must embrace an ethic of sexual anarchy bounded only by the principle of consent. And if I don't, I will be dismissed as the moral equivalent of a racist. That's it. Let me repeat it, brothers and sisters. That is it in a nutshell. As these two forces have merged, these are the implications moving forward. Please, please be clear on this. I must embrace an ethic of sexual anarchy bounded only by the principle of consent. And if I don't, I will be dismissed as a moral, the moral equivalent of a racist, a white supremacist. I'll be categorized like that. Now, we don't feel it here in the Shire, right? Glen Rose. Here in the Shire, we're a little cut off, and that's bad in some ways, good in other ways, but it will come to our front door. It will come to our front door. And it will come to our front door because it is being pushed politically, it is being pushed legislatively. It is being pushed by every facet of the media. What will it mean for the Christian living in this country going forward as the scepter of wickedness extends and becomes increasingly pervasive? You understand the two scenarios? Two different parts of the world, completely different situations, circumstances. And yet both facing what? A situation that is disturbing, a situation that is disconcerting, a situation that is disheartening. And how do we see our way forward? That's Psalm 125. That's where the psalmist is living. That's the experience 3,000 years ago that the psalmist is going through. Different place, different time, different set of circumstances, but exactly the same feeling. Precisely the same fear. It is the same experience he is witnessing. He's living in this day in which the scepter of wickedness is extending. And his concern is this. What kind of impact, what kind of influence is this going to have upon the people of God? Is it possible that they might be influenced to such a degree that they will set their hands, they will raise their hands to commit wrong? And so he wrestles with this here in Psalm 125. He's going back and forth here in Psalm 125. He's pouring out his soul here in Psalm 125. And the answer is simply this. The answer, and this shouldn't catch us by any surprise, has been the answer we've seen in every psalm to this point, and is the answer we will see right through to the end of the psalms of ascent, Psalm 134. Where does he point us? 
Where does he tell us to look? To the White House. Look higher than the White House, Christian. Look far higher than the White House. He points us where? Heaven. He points us heavenward. Look heavenward. Look to God. That's why these are called the Psalms of Ascent. We are going up. And we, they're very experiential. They describe every conceivable experience in life. And the psalmist, whoever wrote it, whether it's David or Solomon or someone else, as they go through these experiences in every psalm, in every situation, in every context, they point us where? They exhort us to do what? They encourage us to do what? Look heavenward. And that's precisely what he does here. He points us to God. And he affirms five great truths concerning the Almighty. The first is found in verses 1 and 2. And he gives us this truth by way of a declaration. He just makes a declaration right there, verses 1 and 2. And the truth that emerges from this declaration is as follows. God protects his people. Never forget it. Verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord. Who are those who trust in the Lord? Just flip back. We've already answered this question. Psalm 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Who are these people who trust in the Lord? They are those who recognize that ultimately their help comes from the Lord, the Creator. The one who made heaven and earth. Trusting in Him. They rest in his wisdom. That he knows all things by one infinite act of understanding. And his ways and judgments and purposes and intents at times are inscrutable, incomprehensible. But he is achieving the best ends through the best means. We rest in his wisdom. To trust in the Lord is to rest in his power. His power is beyond compare, incomparable. He is, as the psalmist has reminded us time and time again, he is enthroned, seated in the heavens above. He is the maker of heaven and earth, and his power is unchallenged. His power is unrivaled. His power is unhindered. To trust in the Lord is to rest in his goodness. He has taken us, his people, to himself as children. And he comes to us, and we meditated and reflected upon this just this past Wednesday, didn't we? He comes to us as Father, having taken us to himself as children. And by his power, we trust in his fatherly, wise disposal in every condition. We trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord, the psalmist affirms two things. Firstly, verse 1, God strengthens them. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Some people are like the sand, aren't they? Completely unstable. Some people are like the wind, unpredictable. Some people are like the sea, unsteady. But those who trust in the Lord are like what? What is the word picture right at the outset of verse 1? They are like Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? It was the original fortress, fortifications built on a rock in the city of Jerusalem. When David first captured the city of Jerusalem, there were already inhabitants there. And the hill was already known as Zion, the rock. 
these natural fortifications. And so it points to immovability. It cannot be moved. It abides forever. God comes to His people, and when we trust in Him, He strengthens us so that we become immovable. But there's a second truth coming out of verse 2, part of this declaration. Not only does God strengthen those who trust Him, He surrounds those who trust Him. Second verse, as the mountains, more geography, surround Jerusalem. What do mountains do? They provide what? A natural barrier. They provide what? Natural fortifications, natural protection. You can't understand the relationship and the history between Spain and Portugal without understanding geography, the mountains. We can't understand the history, the relationship between Scotland and England without understanding geography, mountains. Mountains provide a barrier between people's groups. They provide natural fortifications. And so as the mountains surround Jerusalem, here's what the Lord does for those who trust Him. He surrounds His people. And then a great addition at the end of verse 2, from this time forth and forevermore. It is a protection that cannot be altered. It is a level, a measure of protection which shall not change. You think of the Great Wall of China. We've seen it live a couple of years ago. We were there, we visited. Many of us have seen it. Many of us have at least seen pictures, right? Great Wall of China. It's a couple thousand miles long. I think it's even more than that. Just enormous, the length of it. And uh, 30 feet high in most places, 18 feet wide. Unbelievable feat of engineering. This great fortification, this great wall to protect China from whom? The Mongols, right? And other, and other nomadic raiders living in Mongolia and other, and other parts. Do you know, occasionally, I think on two or three times, invaders actually made it through the wall? You know how they did it? Did it? They simply bribed the gatekeeper. How melodramatic. You've got this wall thousands of miles long, 30 feet high, 18 feet wide, keeping everybody out. All they did was bribe the gatekeeper. How unlike our God. In Zechariah, he declares what? I will be to her. He's referring to his people, the church. I will be to her a wall of fire. He surrounds his people. He strengthens those who trust Him. He surrounds those who trust Him. By way of this declaration, the psalmist is affirming what? He is assuring us of what? He is comforting us with what? This great truth, God protects His people. Second truth is this. It's given to us by way of a promise. In verse 3, God preserves His people. For, we've already looked at this verse a little, but we really haven't got to the heart of it. We will now For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest, remain on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. That is a promise. It is a promise of what? Preservation. God preserves His people. Here is the promise, the scepter of wickedness, this extension of evil, and as evil pervades and takes hold, it will not take hold fully, it will not rest, it will not remain. Why? Because God is committed to what? He is committed to preserving His people. Lest, look at the last statement in verse 3, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. You see, the psalmist knows that these prevailing conditions, they they will tempt God's people. This will be a sore test 
It will tempt them to frustration. It will tempt them to weariness. It will tempt them to disillusionment. It will tempt them to bitterness. It will tempt them to impatience. And all of these things in turn will tempt them to do what? To stretch out their hands to do wrong. But the promise is this by way of assurance that that won't happen. That God, by His common grace, will restrain evil, will restrain wickedness, so that it does not have this effect, this full corrupting influence upon His people. He knows we are but flesh. He knows our weakness. He knows our breaking point. And here we have this wonderful assurance, black and white, in all its glory and splendor. That yes, wickedness might spread. That yes, evil might weigh heavy upon us. Yes, this might be disturbing, it might be disconcerting, and it will most certainly be disheartening. But we have this assurance that God will measure it. God will restrain it. He has a purpose in it. He will restrain it lest we are overcome. And lest we succumb to that temptation to stretch out our hands to do wrong. The third truth is this. It's found in verse 4. And it comes to us by way of a request. Here's the truth. God sanctifies His people. Verse 4, a request, a prayer request. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright In their hearts. Now, we need to wrestle with a couple of things here. Are you ready? As a matter of fact, to be precise, we must wrestle with two things. Namely, how the psalmist uses the word good. He uses it twice. First phrase in verse 4, do good, O Lord. There's number one. To those who are good. What does he mean by that word good in each of those two instances? Begin with the second. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. What does he mean by that? Who are those who are good? He describes them in another light in the remainder of verse 4. To those who are upright in their hearts. He's already described them in another light. Back in verse 3, he uses the word twice. The righteous. The righteous. Who are the righteous? Who are the good? Who are the upright in their hearts? What framework is the psalmist working in? Turn back with me to Psalm 32. This is extremely important and significant that we grasp this. Lest we start looking for something in ourselves. Lest we adopt and fall into a works-oriented concept of salvation. Look very clearly at what David declares in Psalm 32, the first two verses. Blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Who's writing this? David. He knows what sin is all about. You think of some of the things he fell into. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, please notice this statement, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David knew that he would never find the cause of salvation in himself. 
David was painfully aware of his, his own sinfulness, the depth of his depravity, and that if he were ever to be saved, it would be by God's grace alone. God forgiving his transgression. God covering his sin. God not counting his iniquity to him. You want to hear something marvelous? The Apostle Paul quotes those two verses. Are you familiar with where he quotes those two verses? Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, that bastion of Reformed theology. Why does Paul go to David, Psalm 32, in Romans chapter 4? He is proving the doctrine of justification. He is proving in a word, here is what we celebrate, that God justifies us by what? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. David knew it. Abraham knew it. Anyone who's ever been saved knew it and knows it. That by faith, when God creates faith, when by the Spirit of God, our mind is illuminated, our heart is softened, we believe, we see all of our hope as resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand what He accomplished at Calvary's cross on our behalf. We understand that we don't bring anything to the table. We know the depth of our depravity, just as David knew the depth of his depravity. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We rest in Him. And that faith is the instrument by which we are made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we are made one with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are one with Him in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Meaning what? His judgment is our judgment. The penalty he paid is the penalty we've paid because we are one with him. We are united with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. He has taken our judgment upon himself. And because we are made one with him through faith, his righteousness, God's righteousness in Christ Jesus becomes ours. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are washed away. Our iniquity is covered. Our iniquity is not counted against us because it has already been counted against the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are the good, are the upright in heart, are the righteous. We are speaking of God's people those who are one with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Friend, let me speak to you right now plainly if you're not a Christian. Stop looking in yourself. Stop looking in yourself or to yourself for the cause of justification. Stop looking to yourself for that which can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by Him taking hold of us by the Holy Spirit, and us taking hold of Him by faith, our faith is the instrument which unites us to Him. And we are now in Him, and God sees us in Christ. And Christ's death is our death. His burial is our burial. His resurrection is our resurrection. We have died to sin legally, because He died to sin legally upon Calvary's cross. And we are now accepted in God's sight in the beloved. And we are the good, not in ourselves. We are the upright in heart, not in ourselves. We are the righteous, not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus.
Now, we need to wrestle with the second use of good. Right at the start of verse 4, here's the request. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. I hear that, do good. And I immediately think in terms of material prosperity. Yeah, do good, O Lord. Material prosperity. Do good, O Lord. Minimal suffering. Do good, O Lord. Fulfilled dreams. Fulfilled aspirations. A nice life, an easy life, a comfortable life. Sadly, that's how most people think. That is not the good in view. We're never promised any of those things. What is the good in view? The ultimate good is the glory of God and the glory of God alone. That is the ultimate good. The ultimate good is the eternal manifestation of just how glorious, beautiful, and resplendent God is. God triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so what is the good that that God can do to us? It is revealing Himself to us by His Word to such a degree that He conforms us to the likeness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Father delights from all eternity and into all eternity. That is the good. That is the request. Do good. Even under these dire circumstances and conditions, even as the scepter of wickedness spreads from shore to shore, even as it spreads in length and deepens in depth, even as it becomes more and more pervasive, even as it becomes more and more disheartening and disturbing and disconcerting, even use that. How? For our good. Do good to those who are good. Even use those adverse circumstances. Be pleased to use those adverse conditions. Be pleased to use that opposition. Be be pleased to use that weight which weighs upon us and burdens us down. Be pleased to use that uncertainty. Be pleased to use that anxiety. Be pleased to use that fear. Be pleased to use that pain, that suffering. Do good. How? Use it. How? For your glory. How? By making us more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the request. There's a fourth truth. As we look heavenward, it comes to us by way of a warning. Fifth verse. But those, here's the truth. God delivers His people. It may seem odd at first, but stick with me. Verse 5, a warning. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, The Lord will lead away with evildoers. Now, there are actually two groups of people. Hone in here. Look real close. There are actually two groups of people, not separate groups. One group is a subset of a larger group. The larger group, who's in view? The last verse I read in verse 5, evildoers. That takes us all the way back to the scepter of wickedness. The Lord will lead away, lead away evildoers, unbelievers, those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are found outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the huge category, the first category. And then there's a subset within that set, within that category. Go back to the start of verse 5. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, their crooked ways, who are those people? It's the evildoers. The scepter of wickedness. Notice the second group, the subset now. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways. And so there are some, evidently, over here, 
And they are influenced by the scepter of wickedness, these evildoers. They are corrupted by their influence, by their presence, by their example. And they follow after them. They turn aside to their crooked ways. Who are these people? This subset within the larger group of evildoers. Let me use a phrase. George Swinnick used it centuries ago. These are fair-weathered Christians. Ouch. These are fair-weathered Christians. As long as it's smooth sailing, as long as the culture is Christian, semi-Christian, pseudo-Christian, as long as there is no discomfort, as long as there is no cost, As long as there is no turmoil, there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no loss, they fly the banner of Christ. But the moment the storm clouds gather, the moment they find themselves standing alone, the moment they are surrounded by a corrupting influence, the moment they have an opportunity to truly do what lies in the bottom of their hearts, what do they do? They turn aside to their crooked way. There is a terrifying phrase. This this had my attention most of yesterday morning, right there in verse 5. A terrifying phrase. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, here it is, the Lord will lead away. Does that terrify you? That terrifies me. The Lord will lead away. What is that? That's the... Going away to judgment. That is going away to condemnation. The Lord leads them away from what? Depart from me, we hear him cry in Matthew 25. From himself, he at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. He will lead them away to what? Complete that thought from Matthew 25. Depart from me and go where? Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil. And his angels. That should have an influence upon us, that statement. It should have a sobering effect. It should have a very sobering effect. Let me ask you, are you a fair-weathered Christian? There are some in this church, no doubt about it. Are you a fair-weathered Christian? Where are you during the week? And what are we up to during the week? As long as we're in the right environment, And as long as we're encircled and encompassed by the right people, the banner of Christ flies high. But once we're away, and once we find ourselves in a very different context, once perhaps even we find ourselves in isolation all by ourselves, once we find ourselves removed from the people of God, and we find ourselves encompassed by temptation, is that where we live? Are we indulging in that? Are we dual-faced? Some, I mean, you can deceive us, right? I mean, we can be deceived easily. I'm deceived all the time. It's easy to deceive other people and to put on an act and to put on a performance. But God is not deceived. He's not deceived. I mean, that, that's what, you know, I, I get excited about this because, see, that was me as a teenager. That was me as a teenager. And I look back now and... Um, at times as a teenager. 
who did you think you were fooling? I mean, who, who did you really think you were putting one over on? God is not mocked, and God is not deceived. We are in or we are out. We're in Christ or we're outside of Christ. We're pursuing holiness or we're pursuing ungodliness. We're living for heaven or we're living for hell. It is one or it is the other. Oh, friend, are you a fair-weathered Christian? The second influence that truth should have upon us is this. It should have a transforming influence effect. The Lord will lead them away. And while there is time, we must declare God in the fullness of His glory. We must declare sin in the fullness of His misery. We must declare judgment in the fullness of its severity. We must declare holiness in the fullness of its beauty. We must declare the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of his mercy. The third influence is this. The Lord will lead them away. That must have a humbling effect upon us and fill our hearts with gratitude. He has saved us. Christ hides our unrighteousness with his righteousness. Did you hear those words? Christ hides our unrighteousness with his righteousness. Christ covers our disobedience with his obedience. Christ shadows our death with his death. So that the wrath of God cannot find us. Oh, what a humbling truth. What a God-glorifying truth. What a reason for thanksgiving. We come fifthly and finally. As we're looking heavenward in the midst of this daunting experience, by way of declaration, he has affirmed God's protection of his people. By way of a promise, he has affirmed God's preservation of his people. By way of a request, he has affirmed God's sanctification of his people. By way of a warning, he has affirmed and celebrated God's deliverance of his people. And now finally, by way of a prayer, he affirms what? That God blesses his people. Very last statement in verse 5. Peace, shalom, be upon Israel. Peace, be upon Israel. What is peace? I've given you this definition in the sermon notes from A.T. Pearson. The peace of God is that eternal calm which lies far too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by any external disturbances. That eternal calm which lies where? Far too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by any external disturbances. The bottom of the ocean is undisturbed, remains undisturbed as that hurricane passes overhead, doesn't it? That's the believer. That's the one who trusts in God. It is a calm, a peace, a quiet assurance and confidence which lies too deep. Circumstances cannot touch it too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by any external disturbances. A triune God is engaged for our salvation. Hear Thomas Manton. On the Father's part, there is sovereign grace and infinite power. On the Son's part, there is sufficient merit and eternal intercession. And on the Spirit's part, there is continual strengthening and sustaining influence. God triune engaged for our salvation, our sanctification, our protection, our preservation, and our glorification.
our God in heaven above. We do give you thanks for these wonderful, exceptionally glorious truths. And we celebrate your goodness toward us in Christ Jesus this day. And we make much of him. We lift his name on high as we remember his great work and celebrate his great work accomplished on our behalf. Father, we pray that you might take your word now. Bless it as only you can by your spirit to the minds and hearts of men and women. We ask this for your glory and in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.